Hearts are getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. Love like yours will surely come my way. Hey, hey, hey. Today's podcast is on the subject of population growth, which is another one of the central themes of the documentary that we're working on, Critical Mass. Thank you for downloading. Uh, today, we're going to be talking to a special guest, Simon Ross from the Optimum Population Trust. Hello, Simon. Hi there. Now, uh, Simon's agreed to talk a little bit about the issue of population, how it applies to us here in the UK and internationally, and he's going to help us fill in some of the blanks. So if you want to start off, Simon, by giving us an overview of the population situation worldwide. Worldwide, the population is still growing very rapidly. We've still got large young populations in developing countries. And there's a UN prediction that it will grow from about 7 billion now to about 9 billion in uh, 2050. Now, there's a margin of error there. It, that's really relying on family planning rolling out through the developing world. Might be lower than that, might be a lot higher. And we're living longer too, and that, that has a factor. One of the reasons why I got interested in making this film is that I found that I was watching a lot of environmental films that were talking about what I saw as the symptoms of some problems we had, but that didn't want or that didn't mention the fact that population plays a very important role in a lot of the ecological problems we're looking at. Do you see that to be the case? I think that's very, very true. So people say, oh, coral reefs are collapsing, fish stocks are collapsing, rivers are getting polluted, uh, loss of um, habitat, but they don't look at the big picture. They don't pull it all together and say, actually, what's underlying all this? Here in the UK, for instance, when I finished my A-levels back in 1998, uh, we had a population of 58 million, which has now risen to almost 63 million. Is that, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Now, that growth doesn't seem like a lot. That's approximately 5 million people in 12 years. But in terms of the living situation, the pressure on public services, the pressure on our environment, what has that really meant over the past decade for the UK? Well, the thing is, the UK is already one of the most densely populated countries in Europe. It's on a par with Holland. So we're already pretty densely populated, particularly in the southeast. And that's becoming more true. So you're seeing increasingly road congestion, increasing congestion in public transport, increasing pressure on housing, uh, particularly affordable housing. It's driving house prices up, and it means people can't afford to live where they want or near the jobs. I mean, that's exacerbated by other things too, like uh, single-person households. But it's actually population growth driving that. And you're seeing other things too, and it's sort of gradual, but it's inexorable. You're seeing the loss of playing fields for, turned into building land. You're seeing um, gardens being turned into building, being turned into flats. So you're losing that as well. You're seeing the loss of um, natural habitats to either in intensive agriculture or new towns or new roads. So gradually the quality of life is coming down. And you know, also things like increased noise pollution, increased light pollution, stress levels. I, I, you know, that's as far as humans are concerned, but we shouldn't forget animals and plant life as well. The fact that increasingly species are becoming extinct or under threat or rarer within the UK. I saw a documentary uh, recently called The Age of Stupid, which was about climate change, but one of the things that they covered, one of the segments, was a, uh, a very frustrating section dedicated to the attempts to build a wind farm in Bedford 
And what they found was that there was what a lot of people call NIMBYs, not in my backyard type people, uh, who were complaining that wind turbines would drive down property prices and ruin the views and the rest of it, which mm. is an example of an environmental imperative being overlooked because of personal preferences. Now, you know, we can talk about not wanting to sit in traffic or not liking congested public transport or preferring being able to find an affordable home in the place that you like. But really, in terms of environmental imperatives, how much of the population problem that we face is a matter of NIMBY preference versus real crushing ecological problem? You know, I've mentioned two things, the sort of amenity and quality of life, and also the impact on the environment. But there's also the third one, there's a resource issue, and that's really the fundamental thing. Are we going to have enough energy and water and food to supply what's going to be 70 million in only 20 years' time? And of course, that's, not, that's a similar issue across the world. There's water stress in the southeast, for example, and they're talking about moving industry to other parts of the country. Uh, there's an issue about food security. We're seeing record food prices, and we in the UK import most of our, an awful lot of our food. That won't, that'll become harder and harder as populations grow elsewhere. And we've been pushed into hard choices. We've been pushed into building wind farms, which sure do spoil, spoil the, the immunity in the view. We're being pushed into going back into nuclear, which we don't really want to do, but we're going to probably have to do it, simply because of the requirement for energy for all these extra people. So it does push us into hard and difficult choices. Uh, so it's gradual, but it's inexorable, the fact that things are generally getting worse. Um, in just another example, Britain has the smallest properties, flats, houses, if you like, of any country in Europe, and the smallest rooms. Now, that's partly due to um, a relaxation in building regulations, but it's also due to just the pressure of people on a limited land space. Working on this film, I found that the three prongs, the trident of pain, the tripod of doom, whatever you want to call it, the three elements that kind of coincide and work together to put this pressure on our living environment are population growth, economic growth, and both the intensity and increase in consumption. So it occurs to me, and as we've researched and been filming, and talking to people, we've been consistently finding that it's not just how many people there are, but it's how those people live, what circumstances they live in, and what their expectations are for both material comforts and for the long term. If you expect to have affluent people living to the age of 80, where for the last 20 years of their lives they're effectively given a pension and looked after by the state, then that creates not just the pressure on the housing and the food and the water and the rest of it, not to mention the medical side, but it also demands a certain element of economic growth because you're going to have to provide for people in 20 years, but only with either money you're making then or by investing money you make now into a system that grows year on year. Mm. So can you uh, explain to us how you see these three factors coinciding and what you think is the real driver here? They really do combine uh, more people per se uh, drives a demand for more consumption. There is this drive to consume more. There's a drive to consume more because people just generally want to be better off. That's true throughout history. Because there's greater inequality in society, people now see the, what it's like to be very wealthy. They see the lottery winners, the footballers' wives. 
they know what a very rich lifestyle is and they can sort of aspire to that. Um, there's also the feeling of need for security. People feel less secure now because there isn't the same welfare state as there has been in the past. That's been ramped down, so they feel the need to actually acquire some wealth to protect themselves. So there's a lot of drivers to more consumption, and even though there's also calls to be ecological and have green lifestyles, it's quite hard to see people wanting to, very many people wanting to reduce their lifestyle um, if, the, if, if they don't have to. That, that's, that's an aspiration, but it's hard to achieve. On economic growth, every company wants to do better, wants to grow, wants to pay to more money to its shareholders. That's the way it's set up. So again, that, that push is going to continue. Now they're being driven to become more environmentally friendly and that's working to a certain degree. To, you know, there's technological change making things more efficient. But again, that, that's only partially effective. So all of these things help a bit, but reducing population doesn't, doesn't hurt anyone very much. And maybe that's not easy too, but I think we have to try pull all the levers if we're going to reduce our, um, our carbon emissions and our impact. So we, uh, in recent days, we've actually seen one of the first political mentions of population and family size in recent years by the cultural secretary, Jeremy Hunt. For those of our international listeners, uh, Jeremy Paxman hosts the BBC Newsnight program on television here. And Jeremy Paxman was interviewing cultural secretary, Jeremy Hunt, Jeremy Hunt basically came out in favor of not only the party line, which is cutting benefits above a certain income bracket, but aligning that with the idea that your family size is an option. Let's have a listen to what Jeremy Hunt had to say. Well, the number of children that you have is a choice. And what we're saying is that if people are living on benefits, mm. then they make choices, but they also have to have responsibility for those choices. And it's not going to be the role so, of the state to finance those choices. To be clear about this, if you're living on benefits, you are saying don't have too many children. We're saying that you can then have you children, but if you are going to ask for support that is more than the average wage that people earn, then we're saying, no, the state shouldn't support that. That's not fair on working people who have to pay the taxes to pay those benefits. Okay, so Jeremy Hunt there had something very interesting to say about the number of children that a family chooses to have being exactly that, a choice. Now, this alone is actually a big step forward in terms of getting the population issue out to the general public, isn't it, Simon? It definitely is. Uh, in the past, Britain's had a philosophy of predict and provide. You predict the population and then you provide for it. It's a given. Similarly, you know, you have as many children as you like and the state will give you so much for every child to help support them. It's an automatic, it's a given. Now he's saying it's not an automatic. People can make choices about how many children they have. Now of course he's doing that to uh, control government spending given we've got these enormous deficits. But nevertheless, the automatic link has been broken and he's acknowledged that people can make their own choices about how many children they have. And I think that's a great step forward. And I think we would extend that and say, no matter how rich or poor you are, you can decide how many children you have. You can make that part of your lifestyle decision. What I've found in my research, and again, when speaking to people, is that one of the biggest concerns whenever you begin discussing population is that automatically it becomes 
assumed that what you're really talking about is social engineering. What you're saying is that the right people should have children, or people who overproduce are the wrong type of people, and you're making some kind of moral judgment rather than a practical assessment of how many people we can support, what quality of life those people can expect, and what that means for the country and the international community. So, again, this is, while they tell us it's a coalition, this is effectively a Tory government. What does that mean coming from a Tory government to have this attitude towards children. Do you think that this might be a creeping kind of social engineering? Or do you actually think that we might finally see a political discussion about population that doesn't resort to mudslinging about eugenics and hating the poor and the rest of the things that have kept this subject in the dark for so long? There's a huge history about this, all the way back to... Keith Joseph in the 70s who talked about social classes four and five breeding too much and and well before that. So there is this history and certainly a Tory like Jeremy Hunt would say if you can afford it have as many children as you like uh, but don't expect the government to us to pay for it. So we would take a different view from that. We think actually we should support the first one or two children so everyone's got a right to have children but actually everyone should think about the number of children they have not just whether they can afford to bring them up, but actually for society's reasons. And it's very important to say it's not about the sort of person you are, or even whether you're about a native-born or whether you're coming in from abroad. It's just about the numbers. It's just about sustainability. Another interesting aspect to this new policy is that what they're really discussing is cutting child benefit to people making above a certain income. So, to me, this doesn't ring like some kind of war on the poor. Now, it's very common, especially from the labor camp, to accuse the Tories of waging war on the poor rather than on poverty, because traditionally the Tories have been a little bit guilty of that, let's face it, but also in the past 10 years or so, labor didn't exactly ring the bell for the poor either. So, the question is... In the fallout from this announcement, which has caused quite a media kerfuffle over here in the UK, how much of this is political mudslinging that just comes with anything that any party says? And how much of this is really a step forward or backward for public policy here in the UK? They're clearly doing it uh, in terms of um, taking um, those benefits away from the well-off. They're clearly doing that as a sop and a way of showing their fare. And there is something odd about some very, very wealthy people in the UK paying quite high taxes but still getting pay, getting benefit payments. Uh, it does sound a bit odd. And it goes all the way back to the 40s and 50s where they were saying having children is a good thing. Everyone should get money to show that we're all, part, we're all in this together and we're all part of the welfare state. It's interesting that there's been such a backlash too. It shows there's a real sensitivity and emotion in this area. But for us, again, it breaks that automatic link between children and payments. And it's starting to say payments should be about welfare. There should be about helping people in need, not just about paying people who have children to have children or because they have children. So it's not done for the right reasons necessarily that we would say for environmental and sustainable reasons, but it's a step forward. Do you think that that's a product of an era before there was widespread contraception and sexual education? Do you find that maybe what we've effectively done is we're only now showing up to the party a few decades late because now we do have widespread contraception, we do have education, 
and family planning av available to people. And maybe what's happening is, for the first time, it's sunk into the political consciousness that having children really is a choice. Because maybe back in 1940 it wasn't, to the same extent that it is now. I think that's a, a really good point. I think in the 40s they were saying, education is free, uh, healthcare is free, and by the way, we're going to give you money so to help you the child rearing. So we're going to cover you for the basics. Absolutely. Now things have changed in, in a couple of ways. There's contraception, so people do have a choice. We're also a much wealthier society uh, and a much more unequal society in some ways. People can afford to bring up children now without the sort of state help that they had. And actually, the state help is actually a lot less than it used to be. You know, it's, it's not that meaningful to some reasonably well-off people to have this benefit. So for these reasons, sort of the idea of a universal benefit like that has less resonance. And I think in a, in a time when you know, money is tight, that's clearly one of the things to go. But I think we still need to win the argument, uh, which is actually quite well widespread now, that actually we should be thinking about numbers. I think that, that is a battle still to come. So could you, uh, since you brought it up, do you think you could describe for me the resistance that you and the Optimum Population Trust have actually experienced in your quest to bring this subject mm. into the light? Uh, well, often it's, it's not so much a resistance as we'd rather not talk about it. There is this sort of taboo thing. And it comes from a number of things. It comes from, um, obviously, there's religious, there's a religious group, which is, which is there and which is quite significant. There's people who just would rather not talk about sex and, and, and that sort of thing, because a very British embarrassment. There's the sort of independence, there's my family and nobody talks to me about what I'm going to do with my family. And there's a general sort of pro-growth thing. Growth is good. Plus, we're in the land of Malthus, and obviously there's that bad press about Malthus, about the Gandhi state of emergency, the China one-child policy, Hitler's eugenics. All these things sort of are brought in and sort of trail around. So it's a vague sort of discomfort. And in, and in fact, immigration obviously is sensitive too, and, and that's part of the mix. So there's all these sensitivities. And people would rather, I think, hope that technology will get us out of the fix or that it's really not as bad as people think. I think there's a bit of putting your head in the sand about it and a bit about what can we do about it. It's something that's happening elsewhere like Africa or kids getting pregnant and what can you do? And actually, I think there are lots of things you can do about improving reproductive health. But it's, it's a matter of getting that so those solutions in there. But do you think that also there's this assumption that this kind of reproductive blindness, if you will, is inevitable? That maybe, as you put it, that people think, well, what can I do? I can't stop other people from overproducing, to put it bluntly. Um, do, do you think that there's an element of people assuming that any kind of stance or policy on population has to be coercive? I think there is, and I think they, they can't see the detail of reproductive health, and all that, that messy stuff isn't talked that much. Um, it's changing in a professional level, but at a public level it really isn't a part of the discourse. So people jump to coercive policies in China, sort of what they know about, and they immediately think that's what you mean, some sort of controlling people. Whereas in fact most women are perfectly happy to have one or two children. The number of accidents is absolutely enormous. Every time you have sex, 
you're at danger of, of reproduction uh, for a large part of the population. So just a huge range of people getting drunk or using the wrong thing or, or, or you know, things going wrong. There are thing, a lot of things that can be done, but people don't see the detail. So they go for the obvious and we have to change that, that, that discussion around. I came across a statistic that apparently 40% of pregnancies worldwide are either accidental, unplanned or unwanted. That's right, and it's not too, too different in developed countries, and that's on the basis of, of surveys of people saying what actually happened. And some of those were people saying, and I think often people say, well, I wasn't quite planning it, but now we've got one, we'll just have one anyway. I think there's really a, a high, high proportion, um, a, lot of, a lot of, you know, poor use of contraception, a lot of contraceptive um, approaches that maybe aren't always that reliable. So a lot can be done. And in the UK, there's a much lower use of things like intrauterine devices, implants, injections, things that are actually much more common, um, say, in other parts of Europe and that are much more reliable. Could you run us through some basic numbers? How many people suffer not just from bad social policy or from a lack of willingness to confront taboos, but just from the application of bad science? from bad operations, preventable illness and disease and death. And it's not just a kind of numbers game where we look at the amount of land we have and go, we can suit this many people. It's a humanitarian issue. There's people suffering from preventable problems. If we start with the numbers, uh, I was born in 1960. Uh, then there were about 3,000 million people in the world. Uh, now there's about 7,000 billion. So in half a lifetime, it's more than doubled. Uh, to put that in more of a historical perspective, for every one person born at the time of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, there's 33,000 people on the earth now. So that's the scale of the increase. In 2,000 years, which is a, not a lot of time if you go back through recorded, through recorded history, through geological history. When I, when I uh, pop my clogs about 2050, there'll be about 9 billion people. So you can see the population of the world has increased threefold in just one generation. Now, most of the growth now is coming from just five big countries. It's coming from places like Nigeria, uh, Pakistan, India, the Philippines, where they're really growing uh, very fast. Every week, there's another 1.5 million people uh, living on this planet that have to be fed and clothed and watered and housed and so on. And there's now around 20 cities with megacities with 10 or 20 million people spread around the world. And that urbanisation is growing very quickly. Most of the people in the world now live in urban areas, live in cities, and those cities are merging into each other. Uh, now, the, the, the population may flatten out by about 2050, but it may not. It may actually continue growing. There is a level of uncertainty with that. In terms of the impact of that, uh, one is just sheer hunger. One billion people go to bed hungry today. That's more than there has ever been in the history of the world, despite the Green Revolution of the 60s, despite the Industrial Revolution before that, despite all the improvements in crop and industrialization and so on. 250 million women don't have any access to modern contraception at all. Absolutely none. That, that revolution hasn't quite reached them. And of course, many others have to deal with expensive contraception, with contraception that sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not due to distribution problems. There's a huge issue about maternal health, about infant mortality and about um, women dying. Two Boeing jets of women every day die of maternal health issues, 
of problems in pregnancy or backstreet abortions. So there's a huge social and health cost to this lack of contraception. It's not just about um, you know people being born. And there is this huge thing of street children. I was talking to someone and, and dealing with people, slum children, people who just don't have anyone to look after them. So this whole issue of our AIDS, malaria, all these other health issues in developing countries are really made worse because of the population pressure and the lack of funds to look after them. Um, we've talked a bit about the UK and the fact of it's going from 63 million now to another 70 million, another 10 Birminghams being somewhere we're going to put those 10 Birminghams and where are they going to go and what impact is it going to have on living space, on green spaces and so on. Uh, in northern countries, in, in say the western countries, I guess things are stabilising, but there is this still pressure, and it's down to population momentum, there's still this huge swathe of teenagers or very young people right across the world who will still have families who will want to, and, and they will have families too. So there is this continuing pressure. Even though the rate of growth is slowing down, it is still growing, and there is this, still these many, many people who are going to sort of want children of their own. Well, it occurs to me that the main accusation or the main excuse people have for not wanting to talk about population in the media, in the realm of public policy, is that they think that it's linked to inhumane acts or wrong-headed philosophy about the rights of the rich or the rights of the poor. But it seems to me that if you look at the human cost of not just extreme poverty and the overcrowding and the population stress or the biodiversity cost, the effects on our planet, on our water systems, on our green spaces. It's inhumane not to talk about it because there's far more suffering due to the fact that over the past 35 years since there was an active population debate, we have really backslid in terms of how we look after people. We're looking at greater inequality worldwide, bigger wealth differences between the poor in developing countries and the poor people in developed countries. We've ended up with greater inequality, greater humanitarian cost, and all from simply not having a sensible discussion. I think that's true. I think we focus on the good things, on the progress, and ignore the problems. You know, let's make the connections, let's remember about the glaciers melting due to climate change and what that does to the billions of people depending on, on those, that irrigation and that water in India and China. Let's remember the Indian farmers that are extracting all the groundwater and what happens when that runs out. Let's remember what happens when sea level rises, when climate change changes the rainfall and weather patterns, as it has done. And, and let's look at the current situation in places like Australia, and the southern United States, where they're having to already make choices about whether water goes to cities or agriculture. And what happens when we go past peak oil, we oil starts running low, and we have to make choices about what about all the irrigation systems and tractors and combine harvesters and refrigerated units and so on that need that oil to supply that food. So we're not standing, it's not a matter of you know, just the population, just standing still, things are going to get worse. It's going to get tougher for us to supply the food that we already don't have enough of, just as population grows. And just as populations, and, you know, the inequality thing you mentioned, those rising middle classes in China and India that want to eat Western diets, uh, which are very meat-based and very inefficient, who want cars and air conditioning and TV and fridges, and air conditioning and TV and fridges in their cars, that's going to put 
huge pressure on resources, uh, just as the time of population rises. And it's going to be the really poor populations in, in Southern Asia and in uh, Middle Asia and in Africa that's really going to suffer as the battle comes on for resources. You know, we're already seeing the rich countries buying up large parts of Africa for food production. And that's not food production for the natives, it's food production to be taken, exported to those rich countries. So there is real concern about crashes, food crashes, oil crashes, uh, water crashes and population crashes and conflict coming on. Uh, and that's the really scary thing. We, and just as climate change is going to come in uh, and really you know, affect us all in quite bad ways. So there are some quite dark moments looking ahead if we don't do things now uh, to bring supply and demand into balance. One could almost say that we're approaching some kind of critical mass. <laughs> Thank I think so. That's a very good way of putting it. Sorry about that. <laughs> if, uh, if any of our listeners are scratching their heads after we mentioned things like the Green Revolution and agriculture, peak oil, food supply chain, and uh, other aspects of the results of population pressure and the overstretched resources that we have here on our planet... Those are issues that we'll be discussing in the film, and we'll also be discussing them in the next few podcasts as we go along. Before we sign off, would you like to say anything about the Optimum Population Trust? Maybe give our listeners something to uh, something to visit on the web or a suggestion. Talk about your, uh, I think you guys have a Stop It To pledge. Yes, we do. And uh, so you can sign up to that. You can make that pledge, uh, uh, which is on there. But uh, we're, we're in the UK, we've been going for about 20 years. We're campaigning to change UK policy uh, to, around reproductive health here, around reporting, supporting reproductive health in the rest of the world, and around making the message that actually uh, a smaller family is a more sustainable family. We'd put population and consumption hand in hand. We, we think that uh, they, both, they both have a damaging effect. If people consume a lot and they could consume less if they're very wasteful and, and that is true you know they, sh they should think about the environment they should think about how that compares with people in the rest of the world and actually be more economical and be less resource intensive uh, we'd welcome people's involvement we'd welcome their support uh, and we're hoping to make an increasing difference in years to come okay simon ross from the optimum population trust thank you very much for joining us today thank you mike that was our second Critical Mass podcast. Thank you very much for listening. As always, you can visit our website, criticalmassfilm.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, you can like our Facebook page. <laughs> and uh, there will be lots of ways to participate in the future. Right now, you can just go to our website, drop us an email, join our mailing list, have a look at some of the interview segments that we've got online. And uh, while we're shooting, we'll keep letting you know how we're doing. Mm -hmm.